0: This is The Guardian. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com/slash-wondersuite. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question: If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's hel slash scienceweekly.
1: It's Nobel week, the time when some of the biggest discoveries in medicine and physiology, chemistry and physics are rewarded one of the most coveted prizes around.
2: Hello? Hello, may I speak to Catalin Carrico, please? Speaking. Oh, hello, this is Adam Smith calling from Nobel Prize. Oh,
0: (laughs) yes, Adam, Okay.
1: And this year has been especially dramatic an accidental leak, career comebacks and the story of a teddy bear stuffed with cash. So today on Science Weekly, we're giving you the lowdown on the Nobel Prize science, all the way from the big blockbuster vaccine tech to the very, very, very small crystals in your TVs. And we're going to find out how these discoveries will continue shaping our world for decades to come. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. So it's Tuesday evening in Nobel week, and I'm joined by science correspondents Linda Geddes and Nicola Davis, and of course, both friends of the podcast. And you two have been covering Monday and Tuesday's prize announcements. So thank you both for coming on. How are you both doing? Because I'm sure it's been a very, very busy couple of days.
2: Yeah, it, it is an absolute scramble because it's a real rush to get it all kind of written in in real time and often having absolutely no idea about the subject matter that we're writing about.
1: Well, Nicola, I was going to say, sometimes the science can be a bit formidable. I was wondering <laughs> if you have
3: anxiety dreams the night before. It depends which, which field you're covering. I mean, physics is always the one that worries me the most. and It was the one I was covering today because it can be something highly theoretical. And sometimes that can be extremely difficult to get your own head around and then to try to kind of pass that into some way that is suitable for the newspaper. That, that can be quite a challenge.
1: And um, jammy, I think was the word, Nicola, I heard you use earlier for Linda's prize that she got
3: to cover. Very. I'm very <laughs> envious. I cannot believe that one. Dang. Dang, I got the short straw.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think I did physics last year, so it was my turn not to do physics. Um, I did I did physiology or medicine, which is my background, so I'm always more comfortable in that realm. And this year, it was a prize for mRNA-based vaccines, which I know a lot
1: about. So I was like, yes, <laughs> it's my moment. Well, Linda, let's get into that, because this year, Katalin Carrico and Drew Weissman were the winners for their work on mRNA technology, something that actually most of us have used in the form of the COVID-19 vaccine. But perhaps you can explain to me what mRNA actually is. Okay, well, all of
2: us are making mRNA right now inside ourselves in abundance because mRNA is messenger RNA and it's basically a single-celled kind of molecule that is the intermediary between our DNA, our genetic code and our genes, and the protein Manufacturing machines in our cells, which are called ribosomes. So basically, when your cell wants to make a protein, it will make a mRNA copy of the gene, and that gene will then be shuttled to the ribosome and then translated into a protein. So we all have, you know, protein factories in every one of our billions of cells, and they all use mRNA as their currency. Now, mRNA vaccines try to hijack that protein machinery. And the way they do that is you create an mRNA outside the body, or lots of them actually, but for for a single protein. So the most famous example and the one that has been used a lot over the last few years is the mRNA for the coronavirus spike protein. You make a synthetic mRNA for that, then you inject it in inside a kind of little fatty bubble, which is able to cross into the cells. And then that mRNA goes into the cell and is translated into protein. And then the cells show that protein to the immune system. And then you can fight coronavirus. So that's how it works.
1: And so what exactly did Carico and Weissman discover? Well, Carico had had this idea for years and years she had this idea that you
2: could you could inject mRNA into the body and use it to produce an immune response and then she had this encounter with Drew Weissman who was an immunologist at um, the University of Pennsylvania where she was working Um, they met over a photocopier of all places Um, you know one of those one of one of those water cooler moments where they got chatting about what she was working on what he was working on and they decided to form this partnership
3: It's actually funny the way Katie and I met. Back in those days, the only way you could read journal articles is you had to photocopy them out of the journal. And we would fight over the copy machine to be able to read articles. And we started talking and comparing what each other did. I was working with
0: RNA and uh, I learned all of the immunology from from you.
2: But the problem is that when you injected them, it triggered this big inflammatory response, which is too dangerous to you know, be used in people and vaccinate people with. And then basically, using Wiseman's funding, they started really investigating the kind of mechanisms of this inflammatory response and trying to find out a way to inject mRNA that wouldn't trigger inflammation. And what they figured out was that DNA and RNA is made up of these four bases, it's called nucleotides. And it turned out that if you kind of subtly chemically modify Those nucleotides in the right way, you don't get the inflammatory reaction. So that was the basis of the Nobel Prize.
1: I mean, it really was pioneering work and it's opened up a whole realm of possibilities for vaccines and beyond, really, hasn't it?
2: It's amazing. You know, not only has this technology saved millions of lives in the context of the COVID 19 pandemic, it's now being explored as a potential way of vaccinating for all sorts of things, from flu to HIV to Nipah virus, which is this awful disease from bats that has a fatality of up to 90% and is being kind of touted as a possible next pandemic, um, to things like malaria and cancer.
1: So there you go. (laughs) There you go. And actually, what makes this even more compelling, I think, is Carico's story, her life and her research. Because she grew up in Hungary behind the Iron Curtain and she's spoken about the difficulty getting lab equipment there. And then somehow she makes it to the US where even there she doesn't have the easiest time. So perhaps you can tell me a little bit more about her. So Karika was born and brought up in a small
2: town in Hungary. had very humble beginnings, lived in a, a very small house with her family. They had no running water, no refrigerator. She was very good at biology at school. She went to university, then she did her postdoctoral qualification in Hungary. I think she lost funding there and decided to make the move to America. And she did this by, by selling her car and then stitching the money from that sale into her daughter's teddy bear. And then they all moved to the US, um, and then she, you know, she had a tough time at the beginning in in the US. Um, like I said, she'd been working on this idea for years and years, and in the in the mid nineties, um, she was really struggling. You know, a lot of companies that had been interested in this were kind of going, "No, it's never going to work." Funding was being withdrawn, um, and she was basically um, almost lost her professorship. Um, she was, she was effectively demoted because um, she wasn't bringing enough. In. Ten years ago, I was here in October <laughs> because I was kicked out. Yeah? But my mother listened always the announcement of, uh, you know, who gets the Nobel Prize because
0: she she told me, oh, next, next week, they they, they, will, they will announce, maybe you will get it.
3: <laughs> you know, I was laughing. <laughs> there was not even a professor, no team. And
2: she said, yes, but, you know, you work so hard but she went on to achieve these incredible things.
1: Now, Nicola, I'm going to turn to you. It's time for physics. Because we saw yet another w- woman win, only the fifth time a woman has done so for physics. But she wasn't alone. So, so who won in physics, and what did they win for? Yes,
3: yeah, So this was a trio of scientists who won for their work on basically creating these incredibly brief pulses of light. This is attosecond, and we'll talk more about what that means later. But basically, it's such short pulses of light that you can study some some extremely fast processes that are happening. Inside atoms and molecules. So the winners were Pierre Agostini from Ohio State University, Ferenc Krautz of Max Planck Institute of Quantum Optics, and Anne Duellier of Lund University. And they're going to share equally the 11 million Swedish Kroner Prize. So
1: you said this is all about understanding the processes in atoms and molecules. So what do we need to understand about these tiny particles
3: to begin to kind of figure out this work? So when you're thinking about these particles like electrons, you've got to kind of think about the scales that they work on. And one of those things is the time scale. So, you know, it might take me several seconds to cross a room, for example, that's my time scale. Uh, But if you think about it, when it comes to say an atom, it takes 150 attoseconds for an electron to orbit the nucleus in a hydrogen atom. Now, when we're talking about an attosecond, it is hard to explain exactly how brief a period of time that is. So basically, if you think about a heartbeat, that takes about a second. Um, And the number of attoseconds that fit into one second is about the same as the number of seconds that have passed since the birth of the universe. So that is how brief an attosecond is. It is so, such a small, like just ah, mind-bendingly short uh, (laughs) period of time. And that is how fast things happen when it comes to electrons and molecules and atoms. So, for example, if you want to look at um, an electron jumping from one atom to another, that happens in the time span of a few hundred attoseconds. So it's very, very fast. So you need to be able to find a way of studying those extremely quick processes. And that is where this Nobel Prize win comes in.
1: Okay, so... You need almost a very fast camera. And I'm putting that in inverted commas because, you know, it's not a camera, but you need something that operates on this time scale to be able to capture what's happening with these electrons that are in the atoms or the molecules. And so,
3: what did these Nobel Prize winners do? When you take their work together, basically, what it gave us is the ability to create these very short bursts of of light, these pulses of light, these attosecond pulses of light. And the way that this generally works is that basically you use um, uh, an infrared laser light and you pass it through a noble gas, so for example, neon. And the laser light interacts with the atoms and it essentially causes electrons to sort of break free, but then kind of boomerang back and rejoin the atom. And the kinetic energy... Of, of that is then emitted as, as light. And these photons are emitted at a range of frequencies um, and they're, they're higher frequencies than the initial laser light. And that process gives rise to these attosecond pulses. So that's in a, in a very, very small nutshell uh, how it works. Well Nicola my mind
1: is bent trying to think about attoseconds <laughs> and laser pulses but I'm sure there are some really interesting potential real world
3: applications of all of this so so what could we use this for Yeah, so there are different things that can be used for. So, you know, understanding uh, what's happening in certain chemical reactions. One application would be that it could allow the potential for ultra fast switching. If you've got, for example, a material that you can switch from being an insulator to a conductor using light, this would be one way to make that you extremely fast that gives you the possibility to develop really fast electronics based on these very very short pulses another which is sort of still very much under investigation is this idea sort of in the field of molecular fingerprinting of biological samples so the idea here is that you take you know, a blood sample and you'd be able to use your attosecond laser pulses to spot really small changes in the blood and maybe detect cancer or, or other disease
1: Little were we expecting to wake up on Wednesday morning with a bit of drama. The Nobel Prize winners for chemistry apparently leaked. So I got science
4: correspondent Hannah Devlin on the line to tell me what had been going on. Yeah, so there was an interesting twist this morning. We were waiting for the Nobel Chemistry Prize announcement, which normally happens around 11am UK time. But around eight in the morning, it seemed that the names of the laureates had been leaked. They were reported by two Swedish newspapers, something that's unprecedented really for such a closely guarded, secretive process. And at the time, um, the chair of the Nobel Committee said that no decision had been made because the committee actually meets on the morning of the announcement this isn't something that the winners and you know everyone around them are kind of aware of for weeks in advance that they take the final decision on the morning and phone up the winners after that meeting just hours before the public press conference so yeah it's a bit of a strange one if the committee supposedly hadn't met and decided yet where did the leak come from There were a lot of questions about this at the press briefing. I wouldn't say that we have a full picture of what happened, but they did say that a press release was sent out for unknown reasons. But it also gave this sort of little glimpse into the whole process. And, you know, they they were asked, well, were there other people that you were considering at this meeting or was it just effectively like rubber stamping a decision that had already been taken? And Johan Achwist, who's the chair of the committee who making the decision, said no, the decision hadn't been made. It's only when the whole academy vote that that decision is made. You know, the procedure that they followed to reach these names won't be revealed until 50 years after the decision is taken. That's the sort of arcane process that the Nobel Committee follows. So we won't know for another 50 years exactly what was going on there. Well,
1: we did finally get the official confirmation of who had won the chemistry prize. and it was the people who had been named in the leak. So so who are these scientists and, and what did they discover?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, to be honest, it was quite a relief, really, that it was the, the same names so that had been in the <laughs> in the leak. I mean, you just imagine what a morning you might have had if your name had been floated out there as a Nobel winner and then it wasn't actually you. So it was two American chemists, Louis-Bruce and Mungi Bawendi, and then also a Russian scientist, Alexei Ekimov, who's now also based in the US, who were awarded for their role in discovering quantum dots and also, crucially, how to make these tiny particles.
1: So what are quantum dots?
4: This really gets to the heart of chemistry, I think. So anyone who's um, studied chemistry at all will know that a material's properties are normally determined by what a material is made of. So the chemical elements that make it up, how many electrons they have, and how they interact. But when you get down to the really tiny nanoscale, that's not always true. Quantum effects come into play. It's not just the chemicals that material is made of, but also its size but demonstrating that experimentally had been really hard. And these three scientists have really been recognised for their role in first demonstrating this effect experimentally, and then also figuring out how to be able to make these tiny particles that would allow them to be used in commercial applications. So you have these
1: nanomaterials that have these unique properties because of their tiny, tiny size. And I assume that's why they were called quantum dots. And one particular thing about them is when light shines on them, they then emit light at specific wavelengths, you know, different coloured light, depending on the size of the dot. And despite this being on the very small scale, it being a quantum effect, you know, it does actually have applications that people will... Recognise that they might have even seen. Yeah, so
4: for example, in really high quality, high resolution TV screens, these quantum dots are sometimes used as the pixels in the screen. So you'd have two different dots of different colours that would combine to make the kind of range of colours that you see in your TV screen. And they're also starting to be used in medical applications. You can use them to attach to biological molecules and and then be able to shine a light on them and be able to kind of identify different parts of a tumour, for example. You know, one of the things that the committee said today was that some of the biggest applications might still be in the future. There's kind of a lot of scope for new applications in this area.
1: So there are the outcomes from this year's Science Behind the Nobel Prize winners. COVID-19 vaccines, colourful TV screens and the ability to explore diseases within the body. Such fascinating stuff. And my thanks to Hannah Devlin, to Nicola Davis, and to Linda Geddes. You can find all the coverage of the Nobel Prizes at theguardian.com. And before you go, I want to recommend tomorrow's episode of our sister podcast, Politics Weekly America. Jonathan Friedland talks to America's top doctor, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who's warning about a growing epidemic of loneliness and isolation. He explains why he thinks political leaders of all stripes need to take this threat more seriously, as well as how his own experience with isolation influences his role as the so-called nation's doctor. Just search for Politics Weekly America wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Josh and Chana. The sound design was by Tony Onochuku and the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then.
2: Hello, I'm Grace Bend. I'm back and I've been busy. Comfort Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget
0: Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray.
2: And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents
0: I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back.
2: You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 Pa suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's e-u-f-y.com, and discover
4: X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.